Jesus Christ. Right? You know that Christ is not actually part of his given name. Right? That is a, an appendage. That is a title. It means King Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. We talk a lot about how Jesus is the Messiah. This is a big theme throughout the Old Testament. We've traced this many times here on Sunday morning, many times observing the development of the theme of Jesus, of the coming King, the coming Messiah. That this was the great, the great hope, the great expectation of all God's people throughout the Old Testament. Right? They were praying for the Messiah. Little boys and girls, they were playing right, Messiah and Gentiles. Right? It was the hope, the expectation, the, the thing that they were looking forward to. And yet, when John the Baptist who we would say was no slouch of a Jewish person, right? I mean, he was a, he was a very concerned, Old testament kind of guy, right? If, when he sees Jesus and recognizes who he is, what does he call him? He doesn't say, Behold the Messiah who leads the people of God to victory over God's enemies. What does he say? He says, Behold the, the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Some commentators think it's actually from Isaiah 53, from meditating on this chapter that John gets that idea about who the Messiah is going to be. Because there's always a tension throughout the Old Testament, I would say maybe even a tension within the hearts of Israel and a tension within our hearts as well, reflected here, between the Messiah, the great one who's going to be the shepherd of Israel, and the one who would be the sacrifice. Right, so ever since Genesis 3.15, ever since the promises to Judah at the end of the book of Genesis, we've been looking forward to this king, looking forward to this Messiah. But in Leviticus, with the institution of the, the temple sacrifices and the worship of Israel, everything there focused on the lamb, right, the sacrifice. Let me just explain briefly to you so you get a sense of how the sacrifice functioned in Israel how the, the lamb or the goat or whatever the animal being sacrificed for guilt, for sin, for transgressions, iniquities, all those Bible words for bad things, what, the thing being sacrificed, how, what did it mean, right? In other religions and other sort of tribal areas, right, the, the sacrifice was food. Right? We're feeding our God with this animal. That's not how it functioned in Israel. Here's what was happening when they killed that animal, when they killed that sacrifice and, and put him on the altar. So that, that was a, 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 a liturgy, a religious ritual, which is, uh, for Israel, is a kind of symbolic theater. Right? So what they were doing when they transferred their sins, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, when they put their sins on that animal and then killed it, they were saying, God, this is a little miniature reenactment of something you've promised that you'll do for us in the future. That, that this little animal is not taking away my sins, but you have promised that you're going to do something. You're going to send someone who can take away all our sins, remove everything that stands between us and you, and bring us back into peace with God. This little theater here, every lamb that they killed, every cow, every bull, every goat, it was all a theater that was pointing them towards God's word. God's promise to do a future thing that would really and actually and finally and fully and forever atone for their sins and bring us back into that, that relationship we enjoyed in the Garden of Eden for a few minutes there before we sinned. So we've got the Messiah. We know he's coming. We want him to come. 
But we've also got this lamb character. What is the relationship between the, I say the shepherd here, the, the great shepherd, the great high priest, the great Messiah, the great king, and the relationship between that personage and the lamb person? Because the Messiah is going to kick everybody's behinds. The lamb person dies. How can the Messiah, who is like a shepherd, be like a lamb? And here's where Isaiah 53 comes in. Isaiah 53 reveals, look at Isaiah 53 with me. Isaiah 53 reveals that the Lord's servant, so throughout Isaiah, the Messiah is called the servant of God or the Lord's servant. In Isaiah 40, he's also referred to as the shepherd. This is all kind of imagery that uh, was connected for them. So Isaiah reveals that this great shepherd is going to come and going to carry our sorrows, just like the lamb. There's going to be this exchange. So our bad stuff gets put on him, and he dies, and all of his good stuff gets put on us so that we live. We see this described in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Let's read this as we approach our three verses that we'll be reflecting on today. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he, the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, this great one that we've longed for, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was that chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Right? We need a shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've got a shepherd who then is going to do something remarkable for us. So we're the sheep. Did you see that image in the, at the end there? All we like sheep have gone astray. But now we turn to verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So we see this extraordinary thing comes to the surface here. It is explained. That though we are the sheep, the servant who is our great shepherd becomes a sheep in our place. We like sheep have gone astray. He like a sheep is being slaughtered for our transgressions. There's three aspects of this in our verses, verses 7, 8, 9 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Three aspects of this that reveals some very important things about the nature of this sacrifice, about the nature of, of our great shepherd, the servant of the Lord, that will be really helpful for us to consider. The first of these things is that the servant is going to be innocent. This is the emphasis we see in verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, meaning he didn't deserve what happened to him. As for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Again, his innocence here on display, it wasn't his transgression. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
This is an important part of the story of this shepherd who is the lamb, the servant who takes on our transgressions. He is innocent. That means that his death, he doesn't have any of his own sins to pay for, which means that he can take our sins. Right? This was the big problem with all of the priests in the Old Testament. This is the big problem with all the shepherds of Israel throughout the Old Testament. There has never been an innocent, sinless shepherd in Israel. Right? So even guys like Moses, who the Bible says was a friend of God. David, who the Bible says was, was a man after God's own heart. We know in their stories, massive sin failures. There was never a shepherd in Israel, never a priest, never a high priest, never a great high priest, none of the, the top names you can think of throughout the Old Testament story who was ever able to take the people's sins on himself. He could never have been this sacrifice because all of them were just like all of us, where that everything that we do, as we've talked about Lately, in recent weeks, everything we do is touched by sin. You know, there's this, uh, I think all of us sort of have a kind of an operating fantasy about our, our relationship with our sins. That we imagine that, I mean, like, right, you're church people, so how bad can you really be, right? And in your mind, you're thinking, you know, I've, I have done these bad things, but I'm doing these good things too. And we've all got this sort of idea that there's scales, right? We're on, we're, and we're going to show up before God on some sort of like scale game show, right? And there's going to be some guy who's got him. He's going, whoa, whoa. And we're going to be like, you know, hey, he, he punched these people, but he didn't punch these people. Yeah, you know, he, and, every, and heaven's going to be like, oh, wow, all the people you didn't punch. I can't believe it. Thank you so much for coming in here. We've talked about this before, but I think it's important for us to appreciate what Jesus did, to just reflect on it briefly again. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah says, all our righteousness is like, you remember the dirty diapers image? Everything that we do, we do a lot of bad stuff, right? So we want to give ourselves a break if it's not too bad, right? If I didn't punch them, that should, be, that should count as like wild credits on my side. But all the good things that we do are tinged with selfishness as well. Right? We, we do them for our own sake, not for their sake and his sake. We do them half-heartedly, right? Like, I wiped most of the counter, our kids tell us, right? You didn't wipe most of the counter. Like, we, we do things selfishly, we do things half-heartedly, and we do them without regard for the consequences, well, I did what I'm supposed to do. I don't care if it caused famine in the rest of the world and if millions of people died. I did the right thing. So we stand before God on the game show. He's gonna, we're going to be like, well, you didn't punch that guy, you know, because he was bigger than you. <laughs> you didn't punch that guy. Well, you should have given him a hug. He was in a bad place. You know, there's all these faults that God is going to be able to find with us, which aren't even, don't even like take uh, extraordinary creativity to imagine. But all of us, everything we do is touched and tinged by sin. Now I want you to flip that around though when we come to think about Jesus Christ, this, this servant prophesied in Isaiah 53, nothing that he did was ever touched by any of those aspects. 
Nothing he ever did was self-interested. Nothing he ever did was half-cocked. Shortened because he just didn't want to or didn't feel like it. And everything he did, he thought of how this is going to affect other people. Jesus was this innocent, truly innocent, truly innocent, righteous person. Which means that what he suffered, this oppression, this affliction, this slaughtering, this judgment, all of this, he did not deserve. But everything Jesus suffered was a grave injustice. How do you feel about it? When we see injustices in this world, doesn't it, it makes you just want to scream? Right? We want to start throwing trash cans when we see injustices emerge. In the, in the book and in the movie Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, who starts the, um, I can't remember the, the foundation, the name of it off the top of my head, but he, he's a lawyer who goes in and he tries to assist people who have been wrongfully incarcerated, wrongfully punished and sentenced. And, and you watch this movie, you read this book, and, you, and, and you're just, you want to shout, right? You want to protest. You want to say, he's innocent. His whole life has been ruined now. We want, to, we, want to, we want to shout, we want to, we, and we've seen this recently, right? This outrage, this outcry over injustices. We don't want to see people suffer wrongly. We, we certainly don't want to see people die wrongly. You shouldn't be suffering or dying. But every single person that we see and we want to protest over, they're bad. Right? Everything that we just said about like the sin stuff applies to them as well. Right? They're bad. They're sinners. They've probably done things that if there was a video camera following them around 24-7, could probably lead to them being incarcerated at some point. Right? Just like for all of us. In, in the building? <laughs> but we see these things and we protest. And that's... that's that's good. We should, we should rise up and, and uh, speak against injustice. But Jesus, this is the greatest injustice. And what does it say? Nobody, nobody protested. What does it say in verse 7? He opened not his mouth. Somebody should say something. He should say something. Why didn't he say anything? Why does it say twice there, it emphasizes this point, he did not even open his mouth. And this gets us to our second point, which is that Jesus was not just innocent, the servant is innocent, the servant is also willing. He didn't open his mouth, and he was doing this, as he says in verse 8, for my people. He knew what he was doing and who he was doing it for. Which, by the way, helps us understand that the innocence of Christ is not just that he didn't do wrong things, but that he showed up to do what was right. You understand the distinction there? He, he never did anything bad, but more than that, he showed up to do the will of the Lord and to do what was right and what was necessary. So when the servant shows up, Isaiah is saying, he knows what he's here to do. He knows the story that he's in. He knows the, the little ritual theater, the symbolic theater that has been practiced in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. He knows the story. He knows what character he is. He knows what happens and why. He knows, as the servant of the Lord, he knows whose servant he is and what he is here to do. And he doesn't resent it. 
He doesn't resent it. He doesn't protest it. He doesn't shirk it. I want you to think about that. Compare that with how you and I handle this, which is, right, any time another person's sin touches me, I resent it. Right? When they do this sin of driving too slow in front of me. Right? Or the sin of taking too much coffee so I don't have enough. Right? These grave sins. Right? Any time, right? I mean, I'm not alone in this. Any time somebody's sin touches you, you're just like, oh. Right? <laughs> All of our sins touched him. He didn't resent it. He didn't give up. He wasn't like, oh my, I mean, I'd be willing to die for this group of people. No. He went all in. He doesn't give in. He doesn't give up. Here's kind of the big idea of our passage this morning. God's servant suffers innocently, willingly for God's people. God's servant suffers innocently, willingly for God's people. He is as innocent as a lamb, but he's not the lamb. He's the shepherd. But as the shepherd, he lays his life down like a lamb. I mean, it is, it, it, this is the, the great real version of what it would be like if the high priest at some point, some aged, wizened high priest, great white beard, long, tall hat, stands up on the day of the sacrifices and says, you know what, enough with the lambs. It's not actually getting anything done. Let's just put an end to this whole theater. Let the real thing happen. Put me, a shepherd of Israel, to death instead of these lambs. So we can be done with this sin. But they never could have done it. But that's what the servant is. And that's what he's here to do. What does Jesus say in John 10? He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Nobody nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The servant is willing But now this points to the third and final revelation of this this text. And it's this, it's that the servant is going to die. Now you all knew this, but this is an emphasis in these three verses unique in Isaiah 53. That at this point now the servant is going to die. This is the first time we are confronted with his death. And each of these three verses mentions it. So up to this point, there's been lots of sufferings and pain and crushing and grieving and sorrows, and it's bad. But now for the first time we see in verse 7, do you see the reference to death here, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter? Verse 8, third third line in my Bible, he's cut off from the land of the living. And then in no uncertain terms, verse 9, second line, he's with a rich man in his death. He's in his grave. I mean, this is obvious, right? But in the story of the sacrifices for sin, the lambs don't live. God's servant is going to die. God's servant is going to die? We're we're kind of thrust back with this revelation, back into this sort of mystery, this tension that we started reflecting on as well. Right? We, We know, I mean, on some level, they all knew, with every lamb being killed, we know that some great death is going to be required for us to have peace with God again. Blood is going to have to be shed. Death is going to have to come. But then, we've got this great question, what about the rest of our hopes? What about the rest of our hopes? What about... Uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13, how we started this whole time of reflection. 
My servant will be high and lifted up and exalted. What about the exaltation of the servant? What about how, as Isaiah describes in other places, how the great king of God is going to teach all the nations to walk in the light of the Lord? What about that? He must die and he must live. People live and then die. They don't die and then live. So there's a strange and extraordinary mystery, right? It's such a mystery. It's such an extraordinary thing that even when it happens, Luke 24 tells us that as Jesus is explaining it to his guys, and he's saying, guys, the prophets wrote about it. Isaiah 53, didn't you read Isaiah 53? Jesus says it was explained, but it was so hard for them to receive. He says, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets said the the death of jesus the death of the messiah the slaughter the sacrifice of the shepherd such an extraordinary barrier that even having known jesus for years and having witnessed his death and having heard the report of his resurrection they still could not believe it but isaiah 53 explains this for us that God's servant will innocently, willingly not just suffer, but die for God's people. Right? The promised shepherd will become the required sheep. And Jesus willingly, righteously died in our place for our sins. What should we do with all this this morning? Let me, let me just recommend verse 8. There's this phrase there. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? Who considered? Who cared that this was happening? Who paid attention? Right, Jesus willingly, innocently dies for us. Jesus brings God's salvation. This is the most significant moment in history and it just slips past like any other Friday afternoon. And it still tends to slip past us. And yet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this is the main thing. When he shows up at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I looked all around, I looked at the needs of this culture, I said, I'm just going to, he says, I'm going to, I decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This subject is the most important thing to know. It's the most important thing to consider and to reflect on. But it slips past us, doesn't it? I mean, you could, you could, it could be argued that this is the primary motive for kind of all that the world is doing, is to keep us from giving attention and, and paying careful attention to what Jesus did for us on that hill outside Jerusalem. Paul, a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 2, he says that the Spirit of God has been given to us to help us understand what Jesus did for us. So the Spirit is trying to help us understand what Jesus did, which I think by implication we can infer that the world is trying to encourage us to not give attention to the Spirit and to what Jesus did for us. Uh, Mark Twain famously said, I have known a great many troubles in my life, and most of them never happened. 
what do we pay attention to? What do we consider and care about? We tend to care about, pay attention to things that don't affect us or won't affect us, or at least anyways, we weren't going to have any effect on. Right? You think about the things that, that really worry you and bind you up. They're not going to affect you. They're not ever going to affect you. Or if they do, you're not going to have any effect on them. So why are you wrapped up in it? When here is something that God means to affect us profoundly and deeply and transform our lives with. But this is a slippery thing. It's an easy thing to ignore this aspect of our faith. I was, I was thinking about this in my own situation, right? Like we're, we're very comfortable when we think about Jesus. Jesus, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about uh, Jesus' role in your life or how you would want to talk about Jesus to other people? We're very comfortable thinking about Jesus as a very nice man, Right? Like, there's a lot about Christianity that's weird and a lot that, like, you know, people could be mad at. But we say, well, G Jesus, right? Jesus is nice. I mean, how are you going to hate Jesus? He's very nice. We talk to our children. Jesus is a great moral example. Jesus is the lifter of the poor. I mean, these are all things that we're excited about, Jesus being uh, he's the all-powerful one, right? That, that'll get you going. Jesus, all power is given to me. We're excited about that Jesus. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the great high priest who hears our prayer and brings us to God. All of these things we love. But we don't tend to think about Jesus, the sacrifice. You know, I think about, um, you know, as a husband, as a father, as a, as a worker, like we all encounter situations where we're really frustrated, where we feel alone, we feel overwhelmed, we feel like, I don't know what to do here. And who do we look to? You know, for, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, Jesus, you have all power. Oh, Jesus, you're the great high priest. I never think, I never pray and recite in my mind, the Lord is my sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who took away all my sin. Thank you, Jesus. Say, O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. O the Lord is my shepherd. And I think about these, these things, but I don't, I don't tend to reflect on Jesus, my sacrifice. Now, we should reflect on what Jesus can do. We should reflect on what he's doing for us. But when we reflect on what he did... It speaks to a, the depth of what he would do for us. And that changes the nature of those other things as well. He is my great high priest, but remember that he was your sacrifice. So as the high priest, he's priesting for someone he died for. That changes the nature of that relationship. He is the all-powerful one. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he wields it for the ones that he died for. That changes the nature of how we think about our relationship with Jesus. What would he be willing to do for me? Well, he did it. And that changes all that I think that he's doing and what he could do. We need to consider and pay attention to think about these things. Here's just a few examples of from our passage, Jesus' righteousness, his willingness, and his deadness. Brief reflection on these things. 
Think about Jesus' righteousness. Right? Jesus' absolute righteousness is why no works are needed. You don't have to do any good works to come before God because His righteousness does it all. It's also why no good works are welcome. Don't bring them. It's Him or bust. His righteousness, His innocence, or nothing. And this then, consequence of that, is why we can be absolutely secure in our relationship with God forever. Because it doesn't rely on us at all. It relies entirely and utterly on Him so we can have absolute security. You are going to do dumb things. You're going to do bad things. And that is not going to have any impact on your relationship with God because that depends entirely on what Christ has done. And this is such good news. So consider this and then rest easy, rest secure. Let's think about Jesus' willingness for a moment. Do you remember that that moment in in the story of Jesus' crucifixion? Jesus tells all the disciples, you're all going to desert me, you're all going to leave me. What does Peter say? Yeah, those guys will, but not me. And Jesus does this again, as he always does when Peter talks. And he says, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Luke is the only one that has this account. But it says that after, the, after Peter denies for the third time, the rooster crows. And at that moment, Jesus is being brought out across the courtyard. And it says that Peter does this. Here's the rooster, looks across, and they lock eyes. It's this extraordinarily powerful moment. And and in that moment, Jesus, I I, I think what's being communicated to Peter is, see, this is for you. I I told you. I told you. I'm doing this for you. I knew this was going to happen. And here I am. It's happening. And I'm doing this. I'm doing this for you. You know, it's hard this time of the year, Lenten time of the year, as we're reflecting on the cross and our songs and here in Isaiah 53. It's hard not to look at Jesus on the cross and just feel really bad, right? And feel like, oh, doggone it, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to try more. I'm going to do more stuff for you, Jesus. Sure, fine. But listen, that's not the point. The point is he was willing. This was the plan. The gift is is free wasn't coerced. He didn't find himself in a bad situation and made the best of it. Jesus was willing. And then lastly, think about Jesus' deadness. That's that's an emphasis in these verses that's unique. Jesus' deadness. What does dead mean? Dead means done. It means that the work that the servant was called to do, the work that he set out to do, the work that that the Scripture said he would do, is finished. It is finished. Absolute deadness of Christ on Good Friday means the absolute erasure of all sin and all that stands between us and God. The absolute deadness of Christ means the absolute erasure of all that stands between us and the Lord. The way to peace with God is as open to us as Jesus was dead. And Jesus was all the way dead. It's kind of an unhappy thought, right? We hit Good Friday, we want to skip scene. 
Fast forward to, to Easter. But this is such good news for sinners. So friends, let me encourage you. We are this loved. We are so loved. The innocent Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for sinners like us. So let me encourage you to consider this more frequently, more deeply, and worship and be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away our sin. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for being innocent, for being righteous. We thank you for willingly going through with this plan. We thank you for giving up your life so that we may know that our sins are utterly taken away. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this word. And again, we ask that it would dwell in us richly. In Jesus' name, amen.